It's Monique. And Landon. And this is our December podcast, uh, very Christmassy. It's entitled, Do You See What I See? And we're actually sitting with a lovely Christmas tree and guess what? Snow in Vancouver coming down, which is absolutely lovely. So we're going to talk about um, eye exams. And the other day, why we started to talk about this is the other day I was talking to a young nurse who was doing his emergency certification practicum at our emergency department. He had a very, very interesting case. An older Asian gentleman who was complaining of a headache, nausea and vomiting, and some visual disturbances, who was subsequently diagnosed with acute closed-angle glaucoma, which led the two of us to talk about eye emergencies, which invariably leads to talking about visual acuity. Coincidentally, one of our listeners, Alan, had given us a suggestion. Super nerd. I know. To discuss visual acuity for our next podcast topics. So it seemed timely for us to talk about it. I'm not sure if it goes without saying that anyone who presents to the emergency department with any complaint should have a comprehensive history. Whether you use some mnemonic like low TARP or PQRST, you want to know the onset, severity, location, duration of symptoms, associated symptoms, previous ocular medical history or associated medical history like diabetes, atherosclerotic heart disease or hypertension, which is certainly relevant in eye issues whether they use glasses, contact lenses, and of course tetanus status because any break in the mucous membrane of the eye does make people susceptible to tetany. And the physical exam at the eye includes, and you can use a different mnemonic as well, it's called VIPP, V-V-E-E-P-P. I know. So visual acuity, visual feels, external exam, extraocular movements, pupillary exam, and pressure. And depending on your area of work and your specific training, nurses may do all or some of these exams. So we'll start with the VVEPPP. <laughs> yeah. And we'll start with visual acuity exam. Yeah. So all patients with an ocular disturbance should have a visual acuity done. It's been referred to as the vital sign of the eye. Mm-hmm. I kind of like it when people number vital signs. So I'm going to call it the ninth vital sign because <laughs> there's so many fifth vital signs exactly. right now. We'll just call this the ninth vital sign. Now, of course, as soon as I say it must be done, there are exceptions to the rule. Certainly in a chemical splash to the eye, irrigating it is way more important than figuring out how bad they can't see. Exactly. We actually could probably fix it. Occasionally, patients will be in too much pain with a corneal abrasion, too much tearing. So you may need to put some local anesthetic drops in first to Mm -hmm. allow the test to be done. Most hospitals use an eye chart. And it's usually the Snellen eye chart, whether it's on a poster, a computer screen. And, you know, if if you've been an eMERGE nurse for long enough, you can pass your eye exam forever because F-L-O-P-Z-D, F-E-L-O-P-Z-D is always the right answer. Um, (laughs) So the Snellen chart, interestingly enough, although not of much interest, was developed by a Dutch ophthalmologist. Ophthalmologist. (laughs) Did I get the word wrong this time? I think for a change, you got it wrong. Ophthalmologist. I think think that's the first time ever. I bet you his name is Snellen. I'll bet it is, but his first name is Herman with two N's. Okay. And he made it in the 1860s. There were many variations. Sorry, there are very many variations of the Snellen eye chart, but in generally they show 11 rows of capital letters, and the top one is the letter E. Other letters can be used, and the other rows, the letters get smaller. sure everyone's seen an eye chart. If mm-hmm. you haven't, Dr. Google will show you many. The standard placement of an eye chart is on a wall 20 feet away from the patient. Since many EDs don't have rooms that are 20 feet long, in a smaller room, it can go behind the chair using a mirror, mm-hmm. but you need a 
mirror angled Snellen chart yeah. so that they're not trying to read letters backwards. Yeah. Uh, or some of them are actually smaller letters right. and you put it 10 feet away. Exactly. Anyway, someone smart, hopefully, has actually measured this and your wall with a piece of tape on the floor is probably the right distance. You do get someone to cover their eye at one time. You should test the unaffected eye first, then the affected eye. And it's actually a great idea to not get people to cover their eye with their hand. Mm -hmm. One, they may cheat. Um, <laughs> but more importantly, if you are pushing, on, if the people when they put their hand over their eye will actually be pushing on their eye and changing the dimension of their eye. Yeah. You then ask them to do it out of the next eye and it's all been mushed. and Yeah, it makes it all blurry. It makes it blurry, yeah. and so they may not do it right. So it's best to use a piece of paper, a dressing, something to cover the eye. Some places have a fancy little paddle that you put in front of the eye, which to me is just gross because it probably doesn't get cleaned. Uh, if the patient does wear glasses, they can use them during the visual acuity. You just have to indicate whether it was a corrected visual acuity or uncorrected visual acuity. So if, you've, if they've forgotten their glasses, what you can do is take a piece of paper and put a pinhole through it, mm -hmm. and they look through the pinhole. But... Really, if they forgot their glasses, it's going to be poor. Yeah. Uh, Why would you use a pinhole, though? What What does it change? Well, the pinhole test distinguishes a refractive error, which can be corrected with glasses or an organic disease process. Hmm. Really? Mm -hmm. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Several pinholes. How you do that? Several pinholes from 0.5 to 2 millimeters yeah. are punched in a card. Yeah. Or you get those fancy ones, right? That you can actually have a bunch of pinhole... I did not Dog. know that, but I'm glad because the look I'm giving you is like I'm going to stand there at the nursing station no, and measure holes, a I know. 0.5 millimeter hole yes. to put in a card. No, they actually have one that's already made and you can just put it there and you ask the patient to find a hole that they can actually see things really? through. Does mm -hmm. that get clean between patients? They should be because yeah, that would be an infection resist risk. Anyway, the pinhole effect results from blocking peripheral light waves, which are most distorted by refractive error. So it's kind of like putting fake glasses on someone. It is. It's like, exactly like that. Easiest is get them to wear their glasses. Yeah. So with the Snellen chart, as the letters get smaller, uh, it tells you the reading. For example, 2020 or... Which is considered normal, normal isn't it? Yeah. It mean, what it means is at 20 feet, you can read a letter that most humans can read at... 20, 20 feet. feet. Yeah, it makes sense, right? So as you, uh, eye charts can be configured in various ways, but as you get, uh, as the, the top letters, the numbers get smaller as yeah. you go down on the wings. So if all you can see is the big E at the top, you're 2200, which right. means you can see at 20 feet what most people can still see 200 feet away. That would be bad. Yes. Yeah. That's what your vision is. I think, I think it was because I just had my exam done two weeks ago and I thought, I think I'm legally blind because the woman asked me to guess. And I said, I can't even guess because I can't see a thing. It's an E. I know, but you I can hardly see it. Well, I could see the E. all of your years. As I did see the nurse. E, but other than that. Um, all right. So there's obviously cases where a standard eye chart can't be used if someone can't read, mm -hmm. doesn't speak English, or doesn't recognize um, Latin characters cannot cognitively recognize letters. Yeah. In these situations, a modified Snellen chart called the tumbling E can be used. Yeah. And this is where the E, it's the same E, but it's pointing downwards, pointing to the left, the right, so or upwards. Yeah. And it's always the same letter. So you get them um, to show which direction the E is pointing with their fingers. 
I think she made me do that as well. My vision must have been really poor, or she didn't think I could read English, perhaps. Well, I think your handle, your she ability made... to speak English is probably limited. Maybe that was what you it was. You come across that way. <laughs> Uh, studies that have shown, that, uh, sorry, studies have shown that visual acuity measurements using the tumbling E chart are virtually the same as those obtained from testing with a standard. So one's not any better than another. Okay, no. all right. Often how many? It, how many can you get wrong? Well, isn't that a great know. question? <laughs> Who knows? Well, know. somebody does. Oh, uh, probably okay. Snellen. Yeah. Uh, so you should start start at the top of the chart and go slowly downwards. If a patient gets one or two wrong on any line, then you would document it as at that line for example that line say it's at the 2020 line you would say 2020 minus two if they got two wrong yeah if they get three or more wrong you go back up to the previous line okay so you're allowed to if they get one or two wrong on that one you would then write 2025 minus Minus one or minus two okay so you can kind of just get two wrong basically yeah after two wrong you you go well you lose a level and go back up right okay So, so yeah, interesting. It is interesting. Hellman Snellen. I know. Because it is interesting because we do it all the time, but I, I think maybe some of us are not doing it correctly. And yeah, interesting. As I said at the beginning, visual acuity is a small part of the eye exam. And we need to kind of think about, or let's just do a quick review of the other eye exams and why they're done. So there's something called visual field or confrontation, and it's typically used as a screening visual field test. One eye is covered, again, with a piece of paper, while the other eye fixates on a target object, such as the physician or the nurse's open eye, while the doctor stands or the nurse stands directly in front of the patient. Then the the physician or nurse will bring his or her fingers towards the periphery, and the patient will tell them when they see the fingers. So So hopefully... coming in from the sides sides, with your hands. Yeah, and when you can kind of see the peripheral vision, that's when you say, yes, I can see it. So hopefully the person who's doing the test, whether it be the physician or nurse, has a normal visual field because that's what we're comparing it to. So probably I shouldn't be doing it is basically what I should be saying. And really why we're doing that is to detect blind spots, which could be a sign of um, eye disease. So the size and the shape of that blind spot, or medically it's called a scotoma, offers important clues about the presence and severity of diseases of the eye, optic nerve, and even visual structures inside the brain. Many eye and brain disorders can cause peripheral vision loss and other visual field abnormalities. So for an example, an optic nerve damage caused by glaucoma creates a very specific visual field defect. And other eye problems associated with blind spots and other visual field defects include um, optic nerve damage from optic neuropathy from disease or damage to the retina. Strokes or tumors can also affect the visual field. And in fact, the location of the stroke or tumor in the brain can frequently be determined by the size, shape, and sight of the visual field defect. So it's really interesting why you have people like neuro-ophthalmologists who get referred these patients because it doesn't make any sense. So sometimes even optometrists will pick up some of these things and send them to the hospital, which is why sometimes we get our eye patients getting CT scans because of their visual field. We're also looking basically at a general look at their external exam as well. So anything that's out of the ordinary, certainly like globe ruptures or hyphemas, but also redness or swelling like an orbital cellulitis, which can be actually quite bad. Bumps or lumps like chalazians or sebaceous cysts or any rash that might have a varicella zoster or basal or squamous cell carcinoma. 
The other thing we should be doing is extraocular motion or movements. And they're done in the context of any kind of trauma to assess for entrapment of the cranial nerves and in visual complaints to assess for any neurological dysfunction. So normally your eyes move in concert, which means your left when your left eye moves left, the right eye moves in the similar degree. And the, the brain takes the input from each eye and puts it together to form a single image. And this coordinated movement depends on six intraocular muscles that insert around the eyeball, allowing them to move in all directions. So it's your three cranial nerves, three, four, and six. So how it's done is that you stand in front of the patient and ask them to follow your finger with their eyes while keeping their head in one position. And using your finger, you trace an imaginary H or a rectangular shape in front of them, making sure that your finger moves far enough up and down and out that you're able to see all appropriate eye movements. So lateral up and down, medial down and up. And at the end, bring your finger directly in towards the patient's nose, and this will cause the patient to look cross-eyed, and the pupil should constrict. And that's a response referred to as accommodation. Kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's move on of our VVE pupil. Yeah, we're in this the PPs. Is the first P. <laughs> Yay. So pupillary exam. It's important to look at the pupils. If they're symmetrical, if there's a change in shape of the pupils, which sometimes can look oval-shaped in uh, glaucoma or asymmetrical in a penetrating injury. And also, again, to check cranial nerves. Yeah. So how do we do a proper pupil response? Remember that pupils respond symmetrically to input from either eye. So a direct response would be pupil constriction from the direct light mm -hmm. in, that in that eye. Yeah. And a consensual response is pupil constriction in the opposite eye. Right. So how best way to do this is to make sure the room is slightly dark so that the pupils are a little dilated so yeah. that you can actually see some movement. And shine the light in the right eye and the right pupil should constrict. Take the light away. Pupil should get big again. Yeah. Now look in the left eye, but shine it in the right again and the left pupil should, should also, also constrict. constrict. Yeah. Repeat these steps, but then with the, the left, left eye. eye. So to do yeah. it right, you're actually shining the light in both eyes twice. Yeah, and but looking, looking at, at the same each eye, eye different times. Yes, exactly. It's kind of weird, right? That if you would shine a light into the opposite eye, to the eye that you're looking at, the pupil would constrict. Mm -hmm. And so we call it a consensual response. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Nerd. Uh, okay. <laughs> Pressure. So the sec, the last P of the VVPP pill. Yeah. Uh, I guess we should talk about what is eye pressure, intraocular pressure, and why is it always a part of a comprehensive eye exam? So you're going to nerd out a little bit and talk about anatomy and physiology a, a little, little bit. bit. Yeah, I know. It's going to get a little humorous. Yeah. Uh, oh, very good. Wait till he talks about that and you'll get how punny that really was. It was so punny. <laughs> The eye is a closed ball filled with clear jelly, the vitreous humor. humor. Very funny. In the back, behind the lens, and clear fluid, aqueous humor, humor. Very in good. front, between the iris and the cornea. Aqueous humor is created just behind the iris and is in continuous circulation throughout the front part of the eye before it drains out just in front of the iris where it meets the cornea. So this eye helps to keep the eye inflated, just like air inside a balloon. Mm-hmm. To measure this pressure, we can imagine how gauging how a full balloon is by poking it with your finger. Mm -hmm. If there's less air pressure in the balloon, it's easier to poke and put an indentation in. Yeah. If there's too much pressure, it'll be really hard to poke at the balloon. So the, t the poker is called a tonometer. And what it does is it generally touches the cornea to mm -hmm. see how hard it is to poke. And this is measured in millimeters of mercury, although 
it's not a mercury device that's yeah. doing it. So normal intraocular pressure is between 10 and 20 millimeters of mercury. This is not something that you just grab the tonometer yeah. out of a drawer and starts jabbing it in someone's eye. This is <laughs> no. not part of what you do. This is typically in most places is something a physician or NP would do when they go in to do this whole eye exam. It's not really a initial nursing assessment no, thing to go and jab something against someone's eyeball. Um, and there are new ones that don't actually touch the eye. And no. so yeah. it, they're kind of fancy and very expensive pieces Absolutely. of equipment. Yeah. Cause some of them can be done through the eyelid itself, right? right? By yeah. blowing air and stuff. So, exactly. so the reason we measure intraocular pressure is to rule out glaucoma in which the optic nerve is damaged by too much pressure inside the eye. In most cases, the damaging pressure is greater than 20 millimeters of mercury. Um, there are risk factors for glaucoma, including African, Asian, and Hispanic ancestry, having diabetes, uh, or having a family member with glaucoma. Glaucoma does not typically cause pain, and many causes of glaucoma go undiagnosed, which is why IOP is part of an eye exam. Yeah. And it's also in some of the traumatic eye injuries that come in, it's also a good uh, thing to measure. So it's yeah. not always a medical cause, but if someone's had a blow to the eye, measuring intraocular pressure is just part of yeah. The yeah, exactly. And really, I think we sometimes forget um, about eye exams and how important it is to tell people that that should be part of their normal kind of health report is that we are doing eye exams to rule out other disease processes. For me, I go and see an ophthalmologist every couple of years because my mother, who is Asian, um, has pre-glaucoma and because of that every two years I need to get tested um, and measured by the way I am not legally blind um, the but ophthalmologist if you, her, if you see her coming in her car I guess maybe you way. get out of the way but the ophthalmologist and I'm sure Landon would agree is just telling me that my eyes with the rest of me is getting old are you not going to say anything Landon it's, it's Christmas okay I should not insult Alrighty. you just say all right um, now, of note, though, we didn't really talk about the pH, uh, which is oh, actually you... another P, isn't it, really? Mm -hmm. but... Did you forget? Did you roll? Yeah, thank you. In a chemical splash to the eye, it is really important to assess the pH of the eye. And your pH of the eye is normally neutral, which is about 7.0 to 7.3. And it's important to neutralize the chemical and return the pH to neutral to avoid further eye injury. The pH is tested to help determine if the eye has been irrigated enough to remove the chemical. The irrigation must contact the corneal surface, usually through a special eye irrigation system. Um, certainly we have Morgan lenses, or you may have a different type of company that uses different ones. Or you can actually just open the eye and just use a running IV uh, with an eye speculum, they call it. Even running water across the eye immediately after exposure starts to neutralize it. So if you don't even have anything that simple, just trying to get your head under the tap and running the water is enough. How you, you, you do do it in a hospital is you use a topical eye anesthetic and then you touch the pH paper to the conjunctiva fornix, which is between your lower eyelid and the globe. And so that's basically what you need to do. Okay. Perfect. So at the end of the day, um, so I'm sorry, so you should do the pH before, irrigate, do the pH again. If it hasn't neutralized, then you need Keep to irrigate irrigating. it until it that's gets to That's a common question nurses ask. How many liters of saline do you want me to run through the eye? And it's like, well, until the eye pH is normal. Exactly. So depending on what's in it, it could be a while. Yeah, and the thing is that if patients already irrigated their eye beforehand, it doesn't mean that you don't do the pH. You still would do the pH right. to see where we're at, and then you may still give them a little bit more irrigation itself. 
So at the end of the day, here are some needs to know regarding ocular complaints that present to the emergency department. All patients with ocular complaints should have a visual acuity exam. Note that this is only part of the comprehensive eye exam, and depending on where you work and your scope of practice, you may be also responsible for assessing all the other things we talked about, like visual field, external exam, EOMs, or extraocular movement, pupillary response and pressure. Patients who have a chemical splash should also have a pH measurement. Let the most responsible person know immediately though when a patient comes in with a chemical splash and immediately do the pH and start to irrigate. Now just as an FYI there are some red flag complaints when people come in with emergency eye emergencies. Sudden painless loss of vision may indicate a retinal artery occlusion. Chemical splash is definitely a red flag. Penetrating trauma to the eye. Acute ocular pain with nausea, vomiting and or headache may actually indicate acute glaucoma, and a recent curtain across the eye may also include um, retinal detachment. So all of those should be red flag things up at triage, or even when they come into your clinical setting that you need to let somebody know immediately. So <laughs> recent curtain across the eye, meaning a descending oh, field of vision, like a curtain is closing, yes. not that they close their curtain, curtain. too roughly and okay and sorry, not across yes, the eye. and giving them a corneal sorry, abrasion. I just, sorry, I just had a vision suddenly. All right. Um, and the last thing we're going to leave you with is about eye patches, mm -hmm. which seems to be kind of like ice on a, a joint injury. Yeah. It's in, then it's out, then it's in, then it's out. Yeah. So in speaking to some of our ophthalmologists and trying to look online a little bit, we think we confidently can say that eye patching is pretty well out, particularly in corneal abrasions and with globe ruptures. ruptures. Patching may make the corneal abrasion worse. And with globe ruptures, you don't want to put any pressure on the eye. So Certainly makes sense, sticking it? stuff on there may put some pressure on it, especially if it starts to swell and you have a dressing that won't move. It's going to increase the pressure on there. Now, with penetrating trauma where the object is still in the eye, you want to stabilize the object without putting pressure on the eye. And this is where it's not quite clear. It seems it makes sense to patch the other unaffected eye as eyes move together. So if you're yeah. patching one eye, you kind of have to do the other one. Yeah. Because if your goal is not to move, yeah. if the other eye is still able to look... Because if they've got like a they... pen or something in there and you're trying not to yeah. get them to look, you the can't... other eye's going to look, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. They kind of uh, work together. They do. Yeah. So the the end issue is... Right. Or the end goal is there should not be any pressure on the eye itself. So okay. if you look at it and think, well, if I stick something on there, it could swell, it could move, blah, 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 then mm -hmm. don't. And if yeah. you think, mm, no, there's a pen sticking out of the eye, then I think I, I probably want to put something over it. Yeah. So stabilize it, patch the other eye, and no pressure. So that's totally clear now. Okay. Cool. Well, hopefully. <laughs> All right. All right. So Merry Christmas to all of you and your families, and we will see you in 2017. All right. Goodbye. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education. 
www.prneducation.ca.